Welcome and thanks for listening to Finera Group's podcast, The Game of Fintech. Today, I'm your host, Danny Legrand, and I'm a partner here at Finera Group and I head up our consulting area. In our episode today, we're going to be taking a look at QAR or the quality of advice review. Um, the purpose of this quality advice review um, is to ensure that Australians have access to high quality, accessible and affordable financial advice. Uh, the terms of reference require the review to consider how the regulatory framework could better enable that provision of high quality um, advice for consumers. And of course, as we know, Michelle Levy took charge in leading the review and deep dove into the regulatory framework surrounding advice. Today, we welcome our guests, Katrina Swift and Paul Ladrani from Tangelo. Tangelo provides a fresh kind of consultancy, a hybrid model with a focus on expertise and practical solutions for clients of all sizes across financial services. Uh, they focus on identifying gaps regarding people, policy and process and governance and solving problems at the source. Katrina is a financial planning compliance SME who has held senior roles across audit, advice, compliance and first-line risk management for both BT and Commonwealth Financial Planning. She's also led the development of remediation work for the Senate Inquiry Reporting and contributed extensively to the Royal Commission submissions. Paula is an experienced financial services executive with an unrivaled depth of experience in advice. In over her 22 years in the industry, she's managed large teams and worked across audit, advice coaching, learning and development, policy and advice process. Paula highly values driven and is highly values driven and is a passionate advocate for great advice. Paula balances a strategic focus with a highly practical implementation focus as well. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you, Danny. So there's been a lot of um, information about the, about QAR out there and suffice to say it's probably been a bit of information overload. Um, we probably suspect there's some advice businesses out there who just want to keep their heads down until we see some of these recommendations um, getting some air. Um, so what we wanted to do was to keep this podcast brief and punchy. So we're going to discuss three of the recommendations that have been attracting um, much discussion amongst advisors and their teams and perhaps um, give some Takeouts that we can start thinking about as the review moves through the relevant consultation process. So let's jump straight in. So the first one we're going to talk about is recommendation three. So I'm just going to recap what the actual recommendation is. Um, so this is about relevant providers versus non-relevant providers. Um, the recommendation is to amend the Corps Act to provide that personal advice must be provided by a relevant provider where A, the provider is an individual, and B, either the client pays a fee for the advice or the issuer of the product pays a commission for the sale of the product to which personal advice relates. In all other cases, personal advice can be provided by a person who is not a relevant provider. All right, let's try and unpack that, and I'll hand over to you first, Paula. Thanks, Danny. Um, afternoon, everyone. Um, look, I think this is probably going to be one of those recommendations that's going to be um, intensely debated. Um, particularly around, you know, I'm sure in the submissions and what you can read from the report, there was quite a few stakeholders talking about, you know, is there an education, is there a skill set we need to think about for non-relevant providers? By the way, we need to think of a better name than non-relevant providers who wants to be called non-relevant. Um, but, uh, but aside from that, I think I can understand where this came from. I think we need to take it back to where this recommendation really came from. And one of the things that Michelle very clearly called out and one of the things she did very well in the report 
is it went back to the scope of the consumer. This is about the consumer and how they can get access to advice and support that they need. It's not necessarily about keeping the industry happy, but, you know, advisors have gone through a big process of becoming educated, becoming professionals, so they probably see this now going, is this a step backwards that we're, we're going in the industry? Um, but if you think about general advice today, and this is really, I think, where it's coming about from is clients engaging with general advice teams today they're calling a product provider directly, generally for a reason that they're either an existing product, an existing client with that product provider, or they specifically want to know something about that product provider. And they're engaging these teams to get an opinion on something um, so that they can make a decision. They don't understand the limitations of general advice and the limitations that go with it. They think they're talking to someone who's coaching them and giving them information so that they can make decisions. So, so they need to understand, I think, where this is coming from. So we're in a place today where these clients are getting some kind of opinion or advice that isn't actually really well thought through for themselves. So thinking about that, this is where that's coming from. So I do understand the need for these non-relevant providers. Um, and I think if you think about it naturally, it's not going to be the holistic, complex advice. It's going to be the very client-driven style of request you know it's very driven style of question um so I, I do think that's a good outcome moving from general advice to that space i think intrafund advice that's probably in the past you think about that there won't be there won't be a space for intrafund advice and i think for some providers that's certainly going to be simpler you know trying to create teams dividing general advice then what then leads into intrafund advice what then leads into complex advice um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely benefits from that perspective. You think about the fee, you think about the guardrails around that. I think there's still protections around, right, they're not going to charge a fee because at the end of the day the reality is it's probably going to be a product provider who's going to get the benefit from selling their own product. And clients expect to buy that product. You think about, and it was called out in the report too, you think about buying a home loan. If a client wants a Westpac home loan, they're going to go to Westpac and get a home loan. If they want, so you think about that being the non-relevant provider, they want a more, you know, they want to know, oh, actually, I want the best loan. I don't know what that is. They're going to go to a mortgage broker and they're going to tell them, right, this is the best loan that's for you. And you think about that being the relevant provider. Um, there's certainly going to be guardrails for the non-relevant providers. Obviously, you can't charge that fee, again, because you're, you're likely selling your own product. And two, you're going to have to stick within a TMD. Um, relevant providers have got that opportunity to go, what's the best product? You're really knowing this client. Um, these providers are going to have to stick within a TMD, you know, really pretty much the product in line with whatever that customer profile is. I think one thing to call out for that, though, is that product providers are probably going to have to become a little bit more consistent um, and maybe describe their TMDs or target market terminations a little bit better towards a customer profile because at the moment I think a lot of relevant providers are using their own judgments to interpret those TMDs, which these non-relevant providers are not likely to te technically have that expertise in the background to, to deal with that. Um, and, look, I, I think and I'll, I'll throw it to Kat in a minute, but I think the only other thing to call out there as well is, is the obligations uh, is, is an interesting part from a relevant to a non-relevant provider described in the report is for a non-relevant provider, generally it's going to be an employee of a licensee, so all the obligations providing that good advice sits with the, the licensee rather than that employee or the non-relevant provider. 
Whereas with relevant providers, those obligations, those key obligations are going to sit with that relevant provider. Um, and look, this is probably how you're going to interpret the report and it'd be interesting how it comes out. But one of the things that I sort of read between the lines is that good advice obligation is sort of interlinked with some of those general obligations that a licensee takes care of today. You know, you're honestly fairly efficiently, some of those risk management systems. So I do wonder how those obligations are going to translate to those individual relevant providers and the potential change in the relationship between the licensee and the actual relevant provider. Is there going to be a change? Um, yes. Is this potentially, I don't know, reading between the lines, is this potentially moving towards that self licensing regime rather than having larger licensees. Um, I think one call out to call with that is a lot of advisors today probably don't really know the intricacies of what how these licensees are managing those obligations, those key general obligations. Probably don't have a lot of oversight on that and shifting those just to individual relevant providers will be very challenging because there's a lot of lot of work and processes that go into that in the background that um, I think there's still a need for a licensee or a service provider to support that. I don't think it'd be effective for an individual advisor to have to focus that in their day-to-day job of what they're doing. Yeah, right. It's a um, it's an additional piece of work, isn't it? They have to become their own compliance Correct. team, essentially. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, Kat, I'll... Yeah. And, anything and to, to add? And to that point, um, I think where, where this is really... A beneficial piece for the financial advisors is that only a relevant provider can be calling themselves a financial advisor, a financial planner, or a stockbroker. So it's really differentiating the professionalism of the financial planners and the financial advisors within the industry, given that they can they can receive a fee for the advice that they're providing to their clients or a commission, provided the clients um, given the okay for that. So. I think it'll make, definitely make a bit of a shift across the industries to recognise that professionalism that I, that all of the financial advisors actually undertake within their practices. And to what Paula just said is it, it'll now, and I think it'll enable them to set up their businesses a lot more efficiently. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, utilising their staff within their practices more efficiently in the roles that they undertake as well through supervision underneath that advisor, um, but also the, the the risk management component. There are there are separate obligations that sit from a licensing perspective in risk management and monitoring and supervision. So mm-hmm. having, I, think, I still think there are separate obligations outside of the provision of advice that still has a benefit to be within a within a licensee for some of those practices. Yeah, great, good points. Mm-hmm. And do we think, is there any sort of key takeouts um, that advisors can start thinking about now um, if should this recommendation get through? Well, I think I think one of the points that Kat raised quite well is, um, I mean, the report's a little bit written that the view of non-relevant providers probably sits more with the product provider, but I think there's a question to be asked around, can we really think about some of the admin support staff within practices filling this role as well? Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, you know, creating more time efficiencies for the advisor who really should be spending those times with those key clients. And, and I think if there's an opportunity to do that, you know, think about, potentially who, you know, succession planning some of the people in their in their practices, in their businesses for these roles. They're going to need a little bit of, bit of upskilling, but it creates a 
great succession plan within these advice practices from, you know, admin staff to potentially a non-relevant provider going through then potentially a PY journey into an advisor. Mm-hmm. And, and that PY journey becomes a lot easier as well. So you're not only, you know, saving some time and efficiencies potentially within the practice itself, you know, using the advisor's time where it can be spent and some of the admin support staff potentially, you know, doing some of the ad hoc services as a non-relevant provider, um, but also that succession plan into, you know, getting more financial advisors in the business and in the industry, um, I think will become a, an easier journey as well as they go through that process. Yeah, good points. Katrina, anything to add there? Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree with what Paula just said, and particularly particularly with the staffing and the documentation requirements that we'll talk about, talk about a little bit further, that there's, there's that bit of bit more scope as to how advice conversations are handled within within advice practices um, which could which could really really shift a little bit to to tailor the workload of an, a financial advisor within the practice and utilizing the staff for for those types of interactions that may not require as much yeah <clears throat> and you think too we you know given the fact that we've had um, such a reduction in advisor numbers 26 and a half thousand in 2019 mm-hmm. to I think just over fifteen and a half thousand today. Um, you know, I sort of wonder if there's a, a pool of ex, um, you know, financial planners that are mm. sort of sitting there that we, you know, could really um, be well utilised in these kind of roles in, a, in an advice business. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, thank you. Second one. Um, this is recommendation number five, and it is around best interest duty. So I'll just recap what that um, recommendation is. So the existing best interest duty and related obligations, which is the duty to give appropriate advice, assuming the best interest duty is satisfied, the duty to warn the client if the advice is based on inadequate or insufficient information, and the duty of priority if there is a conflict should be replaced with the new statutory best interest duty. Um, the new best interest duty would be a true fiduciary duty that reflects the general law and will not include a safe harbour. This duty will apply only to financial advisors of the relevant providers. So let's have a chat about that. And, um, yeah. Over to, over to over me. To you. Yeah, I'll pick um, this one up. This is actually a really interesting one for me. Sorry, Paula. Go for it. Go for it. I am happy with the work that I've done in the past as well. We've certainly seen across the industry and given, given that this is only going to um, the, the best interest duty in the fiduciary side of it will sit with a relevant provider, which is the financial advisor. Um, it really talks to where the journey of the industry has gone over the last 12 years, I think. That introduction of the safe harbour steps was really a way to describe how you could demonstrate on a file or demonstrate to a client that you'd undertaken those, those actions for the client. But as we've gone down the track... The way the regulators looked at looked at those safe harbour steps, they've tested to those safe harbour steps rather than looking using that as a first point of call in relation to determining conduct. So the outcome the outcome of addressing the safe harbour steps has really landed landed into whether the advice is appropriate or the best in the best interest of the client, and therefore whether it's appropriate, but taking into account the conduct of the advisor, which is really what the law was not intended for um, and isn't isn't a way to be able to test the conduct for an advisor. So Correct. bringing the yeah. fiduciary duty side of it through 
we'll put a we'll put a potentially a greater obligation onto the advisor themselves. Um, I think it'll it'd be very interesting to see how the regulator now has to give guidance as to how they'll interpret this if it goes through. Um, given given that they've relied on those safe harbour steps in their interpretation, then it, there is still guidance that'll be needed to see how they'll test for it. Okay. Yeah, and look, uh, just to add to that as well, I think I think the removal of safe harbour is a no-brainer, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think the industry is very open to that, you know, to have, you know, we've all spoken about that. And if you think about, I think one thing that Michelle did very well is, you know, she's looked at the consumer, but she's also looked at the law. And the reality is if someone wants to break the law, they're going to break the law. Mm-hmm. And you can't have a law, and the way she's called it out, you can't have a law, which is what Safe Harbour and BID currently was doing, is trying to govern a conduct or a behaviour. That's not mm-hmm. the purpose of the law. Um, so I think she's recognised that. Um, and, and really about bringing that law back to being simpler around let's focus on getting the right outcome for the consumer, mm-hmm. making it simple and clear enough so that if it if someone does breach the law or, you know, doesn't do the right thing, then the courts can clearly take an avenue understanding what they need to do. So I think that's that's the purpose and background around that. But I think one of the key sleepers to really call out about this is the key change for the best interest duty, if we look at it today, it's about better position. So, you know, it, it was about demonstrating that the client gained a benefit as a result of the advice, a benefit. Yeah. But you're moving towards statutory best interest duty. We're now talking about the best outcome for the client. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's a whole different ballpark. You know, that's a whole different game we need to, to aim for. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, thinking about how that's going to be interpreted, um, I think you could have people that are going to interpret that to the absolute extreme, which is, oh, you need to know everything about everything on the market. I question about whether that's realistic. I don't think it's realistic for a relevant provider to know every single product on the market in and out. That's, there's just too many. Um I think it will also potentially the risk of that being interpreted is always about the cheapest product out there, which is mm-hmm. I think that's dangerous because it's not always about the cheapest product. Again, it's yeah. going back to what is fit for purpose for the for the customer in their relevant circumstances. So I think there's a bit of risk that this is going to be interpreted to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think the other thing as well is it's, again, I think it's changing that dynamic a little bit around how we deal with APLs at the moment. So, yeah. how, you know, today, does that mean it's it's an open APL and you, yeah. you, you do need to consider everything on the market? That's an opportunity, I think, for technology providers to go, how do we make our research tools simpler and easier and transparent so that, it, mm-hmm. you know, that relevant providers can easily determine what products are out there because, again, they're not, they're not going to know it all. Um, Or is it about can you demonstrate you've got a wide enough, diverse enough APL that you're not, you know, you're not, you're not leaning or biased towards a certain outcome? Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how that's interpreted. Um, And that that seems like a a bit of an objective um, uh, answer, really, doesn't it? How you interpret how one interprets an APL? You know, there there would be clear signs of a Mm. biased APL, I'm sure. But you know, if an APL does uh, include a variety of um, products, then, you know, who's making that decision on whether that's a... Yeah. 
large enough APL. Correct. And it also it comes back to um, sorry. So it brings back though from that the the professionalism of the advisor angle is them showing how they've made that judgment right through all of this. It's like how has the advisor applied their judgment in order to ensure that it is fit for purpose based on their circumstances, um, based based on all of their best interest requirements that they'll have. Uh, Making sure, making sure that it's back to fit for, as, as Paula said, fit for purpose. And the judgment is documented through the file, how they've chosen it and why they've chosen it. As we sort of, as Paula said, it may not, it's not necessarily cost. It doesn't have to be based on performance. It's really back to what is suitable and what's needed by the client. So the, the go forward component from an obligation perspective is still talking about best interest duty, uh, the incomplete and worn component, the appropriateness of the advice. So there's still three core components that will move forward potentially if this is in, is taken forward. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot more documentation of how the advisors have got through that process, I think, going forward. Yeah, good call. And um, that sort of leads us into our um, the next recommendation, which is around the statement of advice. So there has been a lot of chatter, um, you know, positive and uh, positive um, thoughts about this and also yes. negative thoughts about the um, potential change in the advice SOE requirements. Um, so just to recap on that one. Um, uh, so, uh, sorry, just one second. So the requirement to provide a statement of advice or record of advice should be replaced with the requirement for providers of personal advice to retail clients to maintain complete records of the advice provided and to provide written advice on request by the client. Clients should be asked whether they would like written advice before or at the time the advice is provided and request for written advice is required to be made before or at the time the advice is provided. This requirement will not apply to a person who is currently exempt from the requirement to provide SOAs. Um, so, for example, a person who provides personal advice about general insurance products um, and we, we looked at ASIC to provide guidance on how advice providers may comply with record-keeping obligations. Um, so, the, yeah, this is a, a little contentious, mm. I guess, um, with the chatter that's going on out there. And um, personally, I, you know, I've been in the industry for uh, many years, 25 <laughs> years, um, back when cars and strategy papers were um, yes. the, the requirement for, for advice or for recording advice. Um, you know, and so obviously being through FSR and FOFA um, and, and you know, hence we have the SOA as it sort of looks today and sort of morphed into, you know, a quite a large document. And I think we can all agree that um, some of that can be, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing if we can strip some of that out, which, which is great. But are we really going to be ditching our advice documents? And, I, you know, it's a sort of interesting best interest duty, I feel, sort of, maybe flows into this a little bit. How are we going to be yeah. dealing with this one, Paula? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, I think everyone's definitely open, both consumer and advice industry, open to changing what we produce for a statement of advice today, and I think this is really what's driven it. And if you think, you know, you see a lot of those surveys around the cost that goes into just producing a statement of advice and a time to do that. I think what's happened over years is, um general paranoia and caution, too much caution, you know, as soon as something's gone wrong, we've just built another disclosure on top of an disclosure rather than and it's the risk we do every time and actually 
a lot of time we spend with our clients, we always see this a lot, is what happens is you detect a problem and instead of looking at what caused the problem and seeing if there's an existing process that you can solve for that problem, we tend to build another process on top of that. And I think that's what's happened with statements of advice over the years is we've detected a problem, something's gone to court or six <coughs> targeted at something, and we've just built another disclosure or another piece in the advice document to just to cater for that, and we've ended up with 80-page statements of advice. But I think one of the things that it, it does highlight in the report and that and I think certainly things that we've looked at today is there is an opportunity for statements of advice to actually be simpler today. The the, the number of disclosures we put in there today, they're repetitive, they're duplicated, they're not understood by clients. ASIC is very clear that this statement of advice should be short, concise and easy for clients to understand and we as an industry have completely, you know, overcomplicated and overengineered it. Um, So, yeah, I do think there's still an opportunity to think about how can we actually use the existing technologies or the, or the things that we've invested in as an as as an industry, such as your statement of advice, but bringing it back to what its original intent was? Um, and if you think about in practice, one of the things that is called out in the report is, yes, you don't have to give the client a statement of advice or a written document or unless they ask for it. Now, there's two opportunities to gain that. You need to get consent from the client either before giving the advice or at the time of giving the advice, whether they want a written document. That's not something that you can just out of the blue as soon as a customer says, yes, I now want a written document, figure out how you're going to do that. Um, I think as a business you need to really be well set up to go the minute that's asked for I can produce one because, again, it needs to happen at the time of advice. So you don't want to get halfway through a presentation. A client says, can I have this in writing and go, whoa, stop, I need to stop the advice presentation because now I've got to figure out how to write a document. Yeah, stations uh, <laughs> that's something almost that's going to have to be incorporated into your advice production workflow or process. Absolutely, or absolutely. Yeah. Plan. And sorry, Kat. Yeah. That's right. I was just yeah. saying, plan, plan what that type of document might look for look like. Mm. Even even if the client has asked for one, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it needs to be the long winded document that it is now. Yeah, correct. Yeah. correct. And I think um, we sort of see. You know, we certainly see um, with the clients that we work with, um, there's sort of two perspectives on an SOA. It's either um, a, a presentation for the client so that it's part of their value proposition that they actually mm. give a document to the client yep. and then um, other businesses look at it purely as a compliance document and they have to do it and tick the box and, yeah. Yeah. and that's it. So um, I think that's a really good points around, you know, you're still going to have to have something. Um, but Kat, to your point, what is that going to look like? like you know, yeah. maybe you can really, this is your chance to really turn that into that nice engagement Absolutely. document. Absolutely. Something that the client, at the end of the day, it, you, you've got to assume that a client's, the clients that are really going to want it are going to be the clients that just want a memory memory twig of what was mm-hmm. said and what was agreed to rather than it being, a bit, like you say, a big compliance document. I just, isn't, I can't imagine many people out there in the industry have clients that are actually wanting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if, if, you, if you've got a, if you've got a digital form, so for example, you're doing it a digital, I know some people are already incorporating out the video SOAs and the likes like that. It's having a record there that if the client wants, if the client wants to have, and the client says that they want to have a record of the advice that's been provided, they're not necessarily want to go, going to want to go back and watch a, a two-hour or a one-hour interview that 
yeah. Pfizer had with them over a, over a digital component. They'll particularly just have some certain information that they want to refer back to as mm-hmm. a reference point. So, yeah, absolutely. yeah, no good points. And I guess, you know, we we obviously know that technology supports um, driving down the cost to serve your clients. So this is a really good opportunity to um, look at the technology they're using, perhaps look at other pieces of technology that are out there. Yeah. Um, that you feel your clients going to engage with. I'm also mindful when I think about this as a client perspective, like this report is about how, you know, giving that really good outcome for a client. If a client is a really significant um, component, you know, person within your business, you're charging them a significant fee because you're doing a large piece of work, there's more likely to be complexities through that implementation process that might take a bit of time to come through that needs revisiting back to that advice mm-hmm. and I'm conscious that there might be clients that although they didn't ask for it at the time of the advice and so they said no to it at the time of the advice or even prior to that because they understood it as that implementation process goes forward they may change their position on that and request it now legally the advisor may not have to actually give it to them but from a value proposition to their client are they going to say no um and so will they have something there that they can refresh back with the client through that which is where having some automation and some technology behind the scenes that could incorporate and provide that out to the client it just adds to that value proposition that the practice would have with a client yeah absolutely yeah. and look and i think um you know one of the things that we need to keep in mind and i'm going to be honest you know one of the things that definitely gets called out in the industry across a big theme is we're not the best at record keeping mm-hmm. you know you look at <laughs> a lot of the findings in, in in all the reports um we're not the greatest at record keeping so i think there's really an opportunity for advisors today to really already start thinking about that record keeping or, or how they might document that advice journey mm. for the client today without necessarily having a statement of advice as it looks like today yeah. because it's only one, it's only going to help them with their record keeping potential gaps that they have today. Getting them already set up to that place that you're not solely relying on a, you know, legalised compliance disclosure document that you think is going to tick it all off for you so I think really thinking about that but also thinking about that as you're documenting that journey yourself how can that easily be transposed into a client record so you're not having to rework or rewrite something of your own work that could easily be given to a client so yeah those technology systems how do you create that journey of your advice record in a technology system that could easily be you know, transcribed into a client-facing output, which yeah. is realistically what the statement of advice was meant to do. Um, you know, and, and if you think about really what the report is honing in on around good advice and what that, that best interest duty component is about, I always look at it, it's three components. It's what, how and why. So if you think about documenting that advice journey today, think about the what being the purpose. So what have you taken in? around what you're trying to solve for the client, Um, you know, the what of the client themselves, what have you taken in about the client, so their likely circumstances, the how then being how you're going to solve for that purpose or that problem that you're trying to solve for, which is ultimately advice. And then your why being is, well, why that advice? Why that outcome for that particular client, that thinking best interest duty going forward is the best outcome for them 
personally yeah. solving to that what and that how uh, that what and that how yeah what um, is your judgment and why have you applied it why have you yeah. applied your judgment in this case for this client yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and call. if you can and, and if you can do that today if you can do that today i think that will easily become the future written record yeah. of the client that's all they want to know is what are we yeah. doing how we're doing it and why we're we doing, doing it, it. yeah yeah, it seems reasonably um, you know? a good simplified way of actually <laughs> articulating that. Mm. Excellent. All right, so that's um, the three sort of most discussed, I think, at the moment. You know, obviously um, there's a lot of chatter about all of the other recommendations as well. Um, are there any final takeouts or any other um, comments you'd like to make about um, those three recommendations or the report overall? Paula? Um, look, I think I think they they are probably going to be the most debated. I think recommendations. Some of the other ones, I think they're no brainers. I'll be honest, they're no brainer. Quick wins. Um, you know, FDS has been a very yeah. challenging legislation. Um, I think it would be welcomed by everyone, consumers mm-hmm. and industry alike, to just fix that consent forms. Consistency around consent forms yeah. again, big no brainer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think government would be very silly to say no to those, um, particularly mm-hmm. efficiencies, quick win. Um, the other thing, and look, I think if you're reading the report, I think one call out I will say about the report itself, I think I'm not I'm not the uh, the greatest one who likes reading these reports, but I actually did read the whole thing from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I think Michelle actually did a very good job explaining her rationale and one interesting observation I I got out of that we always ask advisors to explain their rationale as to where are we today where are we going and why did we make those decisions along the way that's exactly what she did in that report she she called out where are we today yeah Yeah. she addressed each component and you may not agree with all of it but you can see the thinking and the engagement and the thought process the alternatives that were considered along the way through that report um and and she stuck to the scope of what that was about the whole time so look i think that's one call out if you haven't had a chance to read it even if you want to understand why certain decisions were made you know Mm -hmm. i think it's a good understanding of of why some of the recommendations came out yeah we'll pop a link back in um to Mm. our show notes about that Uh, even i read the entire report which is um probably saying quite a bit and I, i think it was um you know normally these things are quite difficult to read in terms of keeping your attention, I guess yes. there, there's a lot, a lot in there. But I, I, I like what you say, Paula. Um, Michelle has managed to really um, explain her rationale really well, and she's kept to the kept to the point. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I found it it was, it was quite interesting, um, and it, uh, something that we should all really have our heads around. I think, and I think it's nice and easy. It's an easy way to just jump in, and if if there's anything that you're wanting to revisit, it's a very easy report to get into to just focus in on an, a component that might be relevant for you if you're a superannuation provider or an, an accountant you can get straight into where it might be relevant for for your component as well absolutely, uh, absolutely. Some, good, some good wins in there for the general advice side of things and some clarity finally getting some clarity around that gray area of is it personal or is it <laughs> is it personal advice or general personal. advice yeah um i think we've all we've all in the industry known that it it tends to lean to personal advice with a loophole to try and call it general advice. So it's nice that it's being called out and that businesses can structure their teams accordingly now. Yeah. Yeah, great. Excellent. 
Thank you very much for your time and for coming on the show. You guys have really helped unpack um, those recommendations and put some um, simplicity around what they mean and um, what advisors can potentially start doing now to, to pre prepare for uh, whatever outcome this is going to have uh, <laughs> over the coming months. Yeah. Thanks um, for inviting so. us. It'll be very interesting, Tom. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Yes.